We need to acknowledge that it is a difficult passage, uh, not so much in and understanding what's said in it, but in terms of dealing with and responding to the nature of what's said. Uh, we've had a few difficult passages recently, haven't we? Uh, passages like this, though, are not uncommon in the Old Testament. Uh, this, it's, it's set out as a, as a prophetic lament or a prophetic uh, uh, prophecy. Uh, Jeremiah prophesied the downfall of historic Babylon and his prophecy reads very similar to this chapter. It goes on for two chapters, a total of 110 verses and they're long verses. So have a read and it's quite extensive and it's not uncommon. Other prophets have similar passages about the downfall of cities and of nations. So Revelation 18, while it doesn't seem to us to fit a New Testament setting, especially if we have the wrong idea that in the Old Testament it's all about judgment and wrath and God was grumpy, and then in the New Testament it's all about love and peace and God the Father has been calmed down by Jesus. That's the way uh, some people think. This passage is in the the mode of these Old Testament prophetic passages. And it's designed to shake us out of those wrong ideas by taking us back to these Old Testament passages and reminding us that God the Father, through Jesus, whom he's appointed as Lord and King, is King over the nations. He's still dealing with the nations. He's still acting in judgment and salvation amongst the nations. The second thing is it's really important for us to see as we look at this passage that it's a judgment that is addressed to a city, a city and its leaders. It's not addressed to individuals. In our modern individualistic culture we tend to think firstly as an individual and then only secondly, if at all, about the community. And even then, maybe only if it seems to benefit us as individuals. Even our modern Christian mindsets, influenced by pietism, tends to make us focus more on our personal relationship with God at the expense of our membership in the church and in the community. But in the Bible, God is certainly interested in individuals when it comes to our internal destiny. But there's a big emphasis on how he deals with communities, peoples, tribes, nations, tongues. Remember his promise to Abraham was that all the families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, not simply individual persons. The vast majority of the Old Testament is about God dealing with his people, the nation of Israel. And even when it focuses on individuals, it's individuals as they are a member of God's people. The same is true of the New Testament. If we ignored or removed everything in the New Testament that was written either to the church or about the church, we'd be left with very little, if anything at all. 
So God deals with persons, but he also deals with communities, and he deals with persons as they are members of the community. So we live in two dimensions at the same time, the personal and the corporate. As Christians, there's the personal of our own relationship with God through Jesus and the corporate dimension of our membership in the church, the body of Christ. And we disregard either at our peril. We know that it's hypocritical to just go to church but not have a personal relationship with Jesus. But so is claiming to have a personal relationship with Jesus without wanting to relate to his people, the church. So God blesses and curses individuals. He blesses and curses communities. Remember the blessings that were given to Israel as they stood on the border of the promised land. They were blessings given to the nation, blessings that would come upon the whole nation. So individual Israelites would benefit by being part of the blessed community when the whole community was obeying God and a faithful Israelite would suffer if they were part of the community when it was being judged. So when in Revelation God calls Jerusalem, Babylon and then decrees her downfall and her her devastation. It's not a statement about the spiritual state of every individual person living in Jerusalem at the time. It's his judgement on this corrupt system and on the leaders who have built it up and perpetuated the corruption. Biblically speaking, there is truth to the idea of a corporate moral responsibility. It's a good thing when a government apologises for past wrongs, even if the individual speaking the words of apology wasn't actually there at the time that they happened. A nation or a city isn't just a collection of individuals, it's an entity in which the people are members. So that's why God deals with Israel as if Israel were one person. It's why Jesus addresses the churches in the book of Revelation and calls them on to take a responsibility for what individuals are doing within the church. So all of that to say then as we hear these songs about the fall of Jerusalem being called Babylon and the call, we'll see a call to rejoice over her fall. It's not a call to gloat over the death of unbelievers. There's a a call to shout hallelujah over the smoke of her rising forever. That's not about the redeemed watching the condemned burn in hell. It's about the finality of the destruction of the city and its corrupt system. Let's quickly go back to Ezekiel again where the Lord makes this distinction between the individual and the corporate. He says, this is the Lord speaking, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? 
and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God is concerned about the individuals and he treats each individual uh, as they stand before him. But remember the historical setting of Ezekiel? Babylon had just conquered Judah and will soon destroy Jerusalem as part of the completion of his judgment. Yet within that judgment on the nation and the city is this promise that each person stands personally accountable to God. No wicked person will ultimately be vindicated and no righteous person will be condemned. Now thirdly, it would help us to uh, remind ourselves of the background story of Babylon in the Bible, both the city and the idea. Babylon is a, a thread that you can follow right through the scriptures beginning in the first few chapters of Genesis. The first mention of a city in the Bible is when Cain built a city and named it after his son Enoch. Now why did Cain build a city? Well we know that he'd become a restless wanderer. He was living in the land of Nod which means literally wandering. A city for him was a solution to his wandering. It gave him a place to settle, to stop wandering, for his legacy to endure by naming it after his son. And in the ancient world a city wasn't just a a community, it was the base of a kingdom. So a city builder was a kingdom builder. So Cain set a precedent for the rest of humanity. We build our cities, we build our kingdoms to deal with the restlessness and the wandering caused by our estrangement from God. Then in Genesis 11, we see Babel, the city that epitomises human arrogance. Humanity, under the leadership of Nimrod, built a city with a tower to make a name for ourselves and to make it easier for them to disobey God's command to go out and fill the earth. Otherwise, we will be scattered. Then what God did when he confused their languages and dispersed them across the face of the earth was he just simply fast-tracked what would have happened if they had obeyed him, if humanity had been obedient and had gone out of of their own volition. So the nations are actually God's design. Humanity, in the image of God, with all the diversity of peoples and cultures, are designed to, to display the manifold glories of God in creation. But now, because we're sinful and fallen, nations means conflict and war and empire building as we're seeing still in the world today. So as the people went out from Babel and became the nations, the spirit of Babel went out with them. Now, one of the nations created by the Lord, by the scattering of humanity, was the one formed through Abraham. Abraham came out of Ur, a city in the region of the Chaldees. We've got a map there. So you can see Ur 
right down here on the southern tip, the south eastern tip, and Babylon a little bit further up. So it's a city in the region of the Chaldeans, which was a term used in the Old Testament synonymous with Babylonians. Remember the promise to Abraham, his descendants would become a great nation and through his, through him, blessing would flow to all of these other nations formed out of Babel. So it was a promise to reverse that arrogant rebellion of humanity expressed at Babel. So in that Abrahamic promise is the promise to bring things back to the way they should be. As Israel settled in the, and lived in the promised land, there then was this looming threat from these kingdoms in the east. As they grew in their power and their sophistication, they had this desire to not stay on their own patch, but to expand and to take over the world, this empire building. We know the story of Jonah, don't we? Sent to prophesy to the great city of Nineveh, up there in the the northern part of that eastern section. Nineveh at the time was the capital city, the centre of power of the Assyrians. Now in Jonah the city repented, the king repented and they avoid judgement but only for a time. You may be less familiar with the book of Nahum. Nahum prophesied about a hundred years after Jonah and he prophesied against Nineveh like Jonah did but this time they refused to repent. And shortly afterwards Nahum, the Assyrians fell to the Babylonians. The Assyrian Empire became the Babylonian Empire. And then seven years after that In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judea. Sixteen years after that, he destroyed Jerusalem in 587 BC. Seventy years later, the exiles returned from Babylon because the Babylonians had been conquered by the Persians. But never again would they be a sovereign nation. They were under the rule of Persia, then under the rule of Greece and then, by the time of the New Testament, under the rule of Rome. Now the Jewish teachers and scribes during these times referred to these great kingdoms, especially Rome, as Babylon because they saw in them this same ancient spirit of Babel. They were just another iteration of Babylon. Then we come to the New Testament times and when Jesus was born he was visited by Magi from the east, the region of Babylon. They followed the light of a star, they brought gifts and they worshipped him. So we're taken right back to that promise of Abraham that those who came out of Babylon were about to receive God's blessing and through that the fulfilment of the promise to Abraham. So what was then shocking and offensive to the Jews 
was that Jesus came and declared not a deliverance of Jerusalem from the Babylon of Rome, but the judgment that would come upon Jerusalem because they'd rejected the Messiah. That, that which the Jews wanted to happen to Rome, Jesus said, it's going to happen to you. The Jews saw themselves as captives to this Babylon, but Jesus effectively says to them, don't you see, you're not under the power of Babylon, you have become Babylon. Then on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit, there were people from all of the nations around Judea gathered in Jerusalem and we see the miracle of the reversal of Babel. People hearing the mighty works of God in Jesus in their own tongue, as if they were speaking one language. So the confusion of Babel was reversed for those who heard and who put their faith faith in Jesus and the work of bringing people back, the in-gathering, began through the preaching of the Gospel. People weren't brought geographically back to the physical city of Jerusalem and its temple, but they were brought spiritually back to a new city and a new temple, the city which we'll see in the closing chapters of Revelation, the new Jerusalem, built with spiritual stones, with with people. So here in Revelation 17 and 18, Jerusalem has become Babylon, doomed to destruction for her abominations and her idols. And 70 AD, when it was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, it marked the end of national temple-based Judaism. The kingdom of God is no longer centred in Jerusalem or expressed in a political entity. That system has been made obsolete. It's passed away now that it's fulfilled its purpose. But not before the foundations of a new Jerusalem were laid in the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, God doesn't discard the old and replace it with something completely new or different. What he does is he puts the old to death in order to resurrect it to immortality. So he displayed, he delayed his judgement on Jerusalem, physical Jerusalem, to allow time for his son to come and to walk her streets, to face trial, to be condemned and beaten, to be taken outside of her walls and to be crucified, bearing in himself the judgment that Jerusalem deserved, paying the price for her redemption out of slavery to prostitution. And then he rose again in order to bring this new Jerusalem into his father's household. So just as Jerusalem's redemption was through Jesus' death and resurrection, so too Jerusalem would need to die and be resurrected. So the old Jerusalem of stones and bricks and wood was put to death to make way for the new resurrected Jerusalem built of 
living stones of all those who have put their faith in Jesus and become members of his body, the church. If we want to know and experience resurrection life, then the old must be put to death. A seed must fall to the ground and die if it is going to ultimately live. Galatians 2 tells us that we personally must be crucified with Christ so that it's no longer we who live but Christ who lives in us. I've got to take up my cross and follow Jesus if I am to walk with him out of the tomb. The old me must be put to death so that the new me created in the likeness of Jesus can live. And as I said, it's not only true for you and I, but for God's people corporately. The old expressed in national ethnic Israel, centred in the temple, was put to death to make way for the new multicultural, multi-ethnic, Christ-centred church. So, Revelation 18 then, can be read as a funeral service and we'll uh, we'll read it in a few minutes. We've recently had a funeral for our dear sister in Christ, Poha. We have funerals as a way of saying farewell, of finding closure and acknowledging the finality of in this life of their departure from us. And that's what this chapter does. It contains seven songs with seven figures who utter them. And as we hear it read, we'll see the structure of this funeral service for Jerusalem, who's become Babylon. We'll see the first song is a warning, a warning of Babylon's coming destruction, sung by an angel with, from heaven with great authority who fills the earth with his glory. And this angel represents Jesus Jesus has already been represented a few times as by angelic figures. Then the second song will be a call to God's people to come out of Babylon before she is destroyed. Uh, sung by another voice from heaven, that's the voice of the Father seated on his throne. Then there are three songs that are a bit like eulogies, sung by people who knew her and had a relationship with her, but they're not, they're not really eulogies because you means good. They should be called dislogies because dis in Greek means bad. So three people mourn over her loss. And then the sixth song, Babylon's fate is declared by a mighty angel who I believe also represents Jesus. And this song is a bit like the committal part of a funeral. The difference though, you'll see, instead of entrusting her to God in the hope of the resurrection of the dead, Babylon, symbolised by a millstone, is cast into the depths of the sea. Her death is final. Only a miracle can bring her back. And then finally, the seventh song is the closing hymn. And it's sung by a multitude in heaven. People who know that the fall of Babylon means the victory of God over evil and the end of the old and the beginning of the new.
So Sally's going to come up. Now, finally, we get to the Bible reading and she's going to uh, take us through uh, this funeral service and we'll see the different sections as she reads. Uh, I'm not going to unpack all of the verses in this chapter except to say a few things at the end about the one command we see in this funeral service, the command for us to come out of Babylon. Thanks, Sally. Quite a sobering series of songs to listen to, aren't they? Now, while in the first century context, uh, this was the funeral service of Jerusalem, the image stands as a solemn warning for us today and for Christians of all times. The woman and the scarlet beast we saw last week represented Jerusalem in this unholy marriage with Rome and it was a marriage that ended in destruction in 70 AD. But it also stands for any time that God's people have entered into an adulterous relationship with the world. This woman and this beast have taken many forms over history and will continue to until Jesus, the true bridegroom, comes and takes his bride to be with him forever. So the call in verse 4 is a call that we still need to hear. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Come out of her. It's a line that the Old Testament prophets said over and over as they called the exiles to come out of doomed Babylon and return to the promised land. But it's a line that's also quoted by Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 when he's speaking about how we as the church are to relate to the world today. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness what accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever what agreement has the temple of God with idols For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Paul is quoting uh, from the book of Isaiah. Come out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And so Paul says, I've lost the last few verses there, Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It's important to note that God calls us to come out, to go out from their midst, not because we're better, but because he is holy and he requires that his holiness be displayed in his people, but also because of his promises to be our God and Father, for us to be his children. So we shouldn't seek that unequal yoking if we truly desire to be God's holy people. 
partnership between the church and the world will never be a partnership of equals, no matter how good and helpful it might promise to be. It will also, it will always be a tussle for control, like the woman riding on the back of the red beast, a tussle that will always end badly, as it did for the woman who was destroyed by the beast. Whenever we as a church think that we can benefit from the offerings that the world hands out to us on a silver platter, we'll be forced to compromise our soul in order to keep them. And history has borne this out to be true. The most prominent example is when the church entered into this partnership with the secular governments in medieval Europe and became so corrupt, so greedy, that it needed the Reformation. So when the reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin said that the Pope was the beast and the Antichrist and the prostitute, they were speaking the truth about the institutional church of their time. When no one was able to hear the gospel proclaimed within the walls of a church building, it was so, so bad. Today, we see many organisations that were started by the church and by sincere Christians that have little vestige, if anything, of the gospel or Christian truth or values left in them because they thought that partnership with the world and its ways was going to help them. But instead, it sucked out their soul. So we must be always wary of anything that sounds like or could lead to an unequal yoking with the world. From time to time I get an email in my inbox because we're registered as a not-for-profit organisation telling me about government grants that are available to community organisations like churches. It would be nice, wouldn't it, to get some free money from the government. But is it really free? It will always have strings attached. It will then start to pull us in a direction that we don't want to go. A pull away from the gospel, a pull away from the word of God, a pull away from being God's holy, distinct people. Now, the call to come out doesn't mean that we set up monasteries and go and retreat away and have nothing to do with the world, as some Christian communities have done and tried to do. Because that also will result in us as the church losing sight of our mission. It will rob us then of our ability to take the gospel to the world. So we need to be living in the world while not being of the world. Trusting that the word of God is sufficient to nourish our souls as we feed on it and to be the power of God as we go out and proclaim it. Our identity, our methods must come from and rest on the foundation of the gospel alone, not on worldly principles or partnerships. We do need to take on some structures and some methods that are needed for us to continue to operate in this world. Buildings, insurance, legal policies, bank accounts. It's all part of living in the world. 
But we need to hold on to those things lightly, making sure that they don't determine or shape our mission, distract us from the gospel or cause us to lose heart. There may come a time when those structures are taken from us and we're no longer able to use them and we have to truly live as exiles and strangers in this world. But if if that time comes in our lifetime, if and when it comes, we don't need to fear because, as we saw, this is not our home. Our true home has already been established. The foundation has already been laid for the new Jerusalem, the holy city, foundations built by God.